Good morning. Let me add my welcome to Pastor Ron's and invite you to take a Bible and turn with me to Numbers chapter 6. If you're visiting with us here this morning, we're in the midst of a series on the book of Numbers entitled The Journey Home. And in it, we see God preparing His people, Israel, for their journey to a new home, a promised land, namely Canaan. And yet the Bible is clear that this was not to be their true home. Their true home was in heaven. Their home was with God, even as it will be for all who are in Christ Jesus. However, because of their sin, they were far from home. Their sin kept them from being at home with God. We could even say that they weren't really ready to be homeowners just yet. They weren't prepared for it. And that was brought home to me a couple of months ago. I was to drive to Richmond for the day to visit some of our missionaries. As I was pulling out of the driveway, I entered their address into my phone and mapped the shortest route to their office. Unfortunately, I didn't realize that it would take me on some toll roads in Richmond. And once I got to the toll road and saw the signs, it was too late. Without cash in my hand, I pulled up sheepishly to the toll booth and asked if they took credit cards. Of course they didn't. She waved me on, and in the back of, uh, in my rearview mirror, I saw the camera go off and knew that I would be receiving a fine in short order. I did assume this was the only toll booth, and so I continued on that route. <laughs> You've been on that road before I take it. Yeah, yeah there was another toll booth. And the same thing happened again. What should have cost me $1.75 ended up costing me over $40. I clearly hadn't prepared well for that trip. And it cost me. What was the shortest route ended up being the costliest route. And the Israelites also wanted to take the shortest route to their new home in Canaan. A route that would have only taken a couple of weeks to complete. Yet in God's providence, he knew that they weren't prepared for that journey. He knew they weren't ready for the spiritual toll booths they would encounter. At least not yet. And so what does God do? Well, in chapters 1 through 4, we saw that God prepared his people by reordering their life and desires around him. Like the hub of a wheel, God ordered and connected the spokes of their life in Him. This ordering was necessary because as we saw last week in chapter 5, sin breeds chaos and disorder. It corrupts our fellowship and violates our peace. It cripples our faith and stunts our growth. It distorts our perceptions and disrupts our relationships. It wreaks all kinds of havoc in our life. And we can easily feel cut off by it. We can even feel spiritually homeless. But God wants us to be at home with Him. And we see the links that He goes to do that in our text this morning. And so will you follow along as I read Numbers 6, verses 1 through 8. And the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to the people of Israel and say to them, When either a man or a woman makes a special vow, the vow of a Nazarite, 
to separate himself to the Lord, he shall separate himself from wine and strong drink. He shall drink no vinegar made from wine or strong drink and shall not drink any juice of grapes or eat grapes fresh or dried. All the days of his separation, he shall eat nothing that is produced by the grapevine, not even the seeds or the skins. All the days of his vow of separation, no razor shall touch his head until the time is completed for which he separates himself to the Lord. He shall be holy. He shall let the locks of hair of his head grow long. All the days that he separates himself to the Lord, he shall not go near a dead body, not even for his father or for his mother, for brother or sister. If they die, shall he make himself unclean because his separation to God is on his head. All the days of his separation, he is holy to the Lord. Let us pray. Oh, Heavenly Father, your word stands before us and we would willingly submit under that word that you might teach us, but more even than that, that you might feed us the bread of life. And we look to Jesus to do that this morning. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Should I even ask how your New Year's resolutions are coming along? I suspect for some of us, Your strength and your resolve remain firm. Your resolutions are still intact as you've begun to see a little bit of fruit from those resolutions. Others of us are not feeling so strong or so resolved. Our resolutions are in danger of faltering. They're faltering because the cost is outweighing the benefits. The resolution you made is not the bargain that you signed up for, is it? And then there's the final group who are like, what resolutions? But stop and think for just a moment. What drives our resolutions? What motivates us to make them? Isn't it a falling short of who we want to be? But more to the point, isn't it a falling falling short of who we were made to be? Namely, God's image bearers to His creation. After all, why do we resolve to lose weight? Exercise more, manage our time better, go deeper in relationships and pray more regularly. It's because we think we're deficient in these areas. We're not living up to our standards, much less God's standard. So how did you know which resolutions to make this year? Well, some of you are probably badgered by someone who forced you to make a resolution. Perhaps someone who loved you deeply, a family member but probably one who has experienced that deficiency in your life. It's their desire, maybe even their mandate, that your behavior change. And yet others of you are likely inspired by someone to make a resolution. Like They beautifully displayed what you aspire to be. Their life is a living testimony of what you long to become. Their life gives you hope that your life can change too. In a way, that was the role of the Nazarite. To influence and shape the spiritual conscience of Israel. To remind Israel who she was in the Lord. And how she was to live before Him. They were to serve as what Blaise Pascal called fixed points for Israel. Pascal, a 17th century French physicist and mathematician, explains this idea in his book, Pensees. 
He writes, when everything is moving at once, nothing appears to be moving as on board a ship. When everyone is moving toward depravity, no one seems to be moving. But if someone stops, he shows up the others who are rushing on by acting as a fixed point. That was the role of the Nazarite, to act as a fixed point to show Israel the truth of her condition and the truth of her calling. How were the Nazarites to influence and shape the spiritual conscience of Israel? How were they to be fixed points? Well, by their separation. The Nazarite vow was a vow of separation. In fact, it's in the name. The Hebrew word for Nazarite, Nazir, means one separated, one dedicated. The purpose of their vow was to separate themselves to the Lord by separating themselves from the world. The Lord prescribed three ways they were to separate themselves to the Lord. They were to refrain from drinking or eating the fruit of the grapevine, from getting a haircut, and from coming near a dead body. Now, on the surface, these three prohibitions may seem random and insignificant, at least to our 21st century ears. What are we to make of the significance of these vows? Well, let's look at the first prohibition, which we find in verses 3 and 4. The Nazarite shall separate himself from wine and strong drink. He shall drink no vinegar made from wine or strong drink and shall not drink any juice of grapes or eat grapes fresh or dried. All the days of his separation, he shall eat nothing that is produced by the grapevine, not even the seeds or the skins. We see here that every part of the grape is off limits. The juice, the flesh, even the seeds and the skins. Now we can understand the abstaining from the intoxicating effects of alcohol. That's not hard to believe. But not eating any part of the grape seems a little extreme. That is until you know that in the ancient world, wine was a a well-known symbol of joy. The Bible even affirmed that wine gladdens the heart. The grape was woven into the cultural fabric of that world. It was integral to one's enjoyment in life. So to separate oneself from the joy of grapes to the joy of God was a remarkable picture of self-denial, of not being ruled by our passions or our pleasures. The second prohibition involved letting one's hair grow out and not cutting it. We we see that in verse 5. All the days of his vow of separation, no razor shall touch his head. Until that time is completed, he shall let the locks of hair of his head grow long. Now, believe it or not, people got haircuts 3,000 years ago. Keeping your hair trimmed was important to the ancient world, perhaps as much as it is for us. But what was the significance of letting your hair grow out? Well, think about your hair. It's a living part of your body, isn't it? And as such, it was seen as a natural symbol of a person's life. Letting your hair grow out without cutting it was an unmistakable symbol a symbol of giving your life over completely to God's control. That your life didn't belong to you, but it belonged to God to do with whatever He deems fitting. 
The third prohibition was to keep away from a dead body. We see that in verses 6 through 7. All the days that he separates himself to the Lord, he shall not go near a dead body, not, not even for his father or for his mother, for brother or sister. If they die, shall he make himself unclean because his separation to God is on his head. Now, we've already seen in the previous chapter the defiling power of contact with a dead body. As God's people, all of Israel was to avoid contact with a dead body. The only exception was for a family member that died. You, you could prepare the body for burial. But not so for the Nazarite. Even if it was a parent or a sibling that had died, he couldn't come near the body or else he would risk breaking the vow. That meant not being able to attend funerals. I think this begins to illustrate the high cost of making a Nazarite vow, of the extreme sacrifice of separating oneself from the things of the world to the living God. And so the Nazarite was to be a model for Israel of who they were meant to be as a kingdom of priests and a a holy nation. They were called to be holy, set apart and distinct from the nations around them, separated to God from the world. They were to spur the Israelites a holy living. They were to provide a beautiful and compelling example of a life given over to God. You know, I think one of the reasons the Nazarites had such influence in Israel was because they were lay people. The Nazarites were not part of the Levitical or priestly order. They were not obligated by an office to make such a vow. Their abstention from certain foods or getting haircuts or touching dead bodies, it was all voluntary. People knew the Levites and the priests had to abstain from these things because it was part of fulfilling their role, but not the Nazarites. They willingly took on these vows because they felt called to this special service. Now, I want to encourage you this morning that you have more influence than you realize. You have more influence in the life of your friends, your family, your co-workers, your neighbors than I or any of the pastors here could ever have. Well, how's that? Well, you see people expect us to live holy lives, right? They expect us to live righteously and sacrificially. It's our job. We have to whether we want to or not. Now, thankfully, that's not true, but it's often the perception But in contrast, they don't expect ordinary people like you to live that way. It's not your job. It's your choice. So when you forgive someone who has deeply wronged you, or you tell the truth knowing it will cost your advancement at work, or you give sacrificially to help someone that is in need, that is a paradigm buster. That's a mind blower. They don't expect it. Believe it or not, Jesus experienced this in his own life. There was the time Jesus was teaching in the synagogue in Nazareth, which we read about in Matthew 13. As Jesus taught, his hearers were deeply impacted. They were flat out amazed by what they heard. They said, where did this man get this wisdom and these mighty works? Is not this the carpenter's son? Is not his mother called Mary? Are not his brothers James and Joseph and Simon and Judas, are not all his sisters with us? Where then did this man get all these things? They're saying, Jesus, 
We know where you've come from. We know your family. Your father was a carpenter, a laborer, not a rabbi. Your mother was Mary, which is something of a dig at his scandalous birth. And we've seen your brothers and your sisters, and there's nothing extraordinary about them. How is it that you do what you do? You see, by your life, you are embodying the beauty of the gospel. You are making it real for those who are around you. You are making it tangible and understandable. You show them the gospel's power to transform your life. You can do that so much more effectively than we can. People expect it from us. But they don't necessarily expect it from you. And yet for a Nazarite, making an external vow of holiness does not automatically transform one internally. No more so than making a resolution produces changed behavior. No matter how sincere a Nazarite might have been in their vow, there were occasions that they broke their vows. Verses 9 through 12 imagine such a situation. A Nazarite is talking to a man. In the middle of their conversation, that man dies of a heart attack. Because the Nazarite is in the presence now of this dead man, he has broken his vow. Even though his vow was broken by an unintentional act, sacrifices now had to be made. Blood had to be shed to atone for the broken vow. And yet I think more times than not, our sin is not the unintentional variety, is it? It's more often the intentional kind. We willingly, openly, repeatedly sin against God. We entertain lustful thoughts toward those who are not our spouse. We harbor bitterness toward those who have injured our reputation. We spread gossip to gain the approval of people. We covet the success of others and resent them for having it. We hoard our time and talents to make a name for ourselves. And this is all before lunch. As we fail to separate ourselves to God, our life begins to experience a disintegration. The glue of grace that holds our life together begins to disintegrate. It gradually loses its cohesiveness, its strength, and its resistance. A prime example of this disintegration is found in the life of Samson, who was one of Israel's judges. Samson, in fact, was the first Nazarite named in Scripture. It was said to his mother that Samson was to be a Nazarite to God from the womb to the day he died, and that he shall begin to save Israel from the hand of the Philistines. His was to be a life fully devoted fully separated to God as prescribed by the Nazarite vow in our text. And yet the very first encounter we have with Samson shows something very different. Rather than separate himself to God from the world, he separates himself from God to the world. He showed a blatant disregard for God's call to separate by marrying a Philistine woman. And on his way down to marry her, the Bible says he turned aside to a dead lion carcass. You may remember that. There was a bee colony that had set up shop there and there was plenty of honey to eat. As a Nazarite, of course, he was to steer clear of all dead bodies, including animal dead bodies. Yet it was his appetite that guided his choice rather than his call, 
and he broke his vow. After the wedding, it was expected of Samson to throw a party. After all, all the young men did that. And he did not disappoint and prepared a great feast that would have included alcohol. Now we know that because the root word here for feast is to drink. And given the nature of the occasion, we can assume that Samson was not volunteering to be a designated driver. And so he broke yet another part of his vow. Samson's marriage was short-lived because of an uncontrolled temper. He also had an uncontrolled sexual appetite, which took him down to Gaza. We might say that he was looking for love in all the wrong places. And he thought he had found it in a woman named Delilah. His relationship with Delilah allows us to see the full-on disintegration happening in his life. The one whose life had been set apart unto God was now falling apart. He had fallen for a woman whose sole interest in Samson was not love. It was finding out his source of strength so she could get paid. She was relentless in her quest and eventually he told her the source of his strength, his uncut hair. By the next morning, his hair was gone and so was his strength. It was the costliest haircut Samson had ever received as he broke the third and final part of his vow. It is tragic to see the disintegration of Samson's life, to see clearly a call on his life and the refusal to lean into that call, to live in that call, to see his life controlled by his appetites and not by the Spirit. And yet I wonder if our life was laid out before us like Samson's, what would we see? Would we find evidence of disintegration in our life? Would we find a greater commitment to our personal happiness than our personal holiness? You see, we need more than a Nazarite to inspire us to holiness, to remind us of who we are. We need a true Nazarite who can save us, who can restore us, who can reintegrate us into wholeness. We need Jesus Christ. We need a true Nazarite who set aside the joy and comfort that were rightly His, who left the glories of heaven and came down to live in our midst. We need a true Nazarite who gave up complete control of his life, placing it fully into the Father's hands. We need a true Nazarite who separated from sin and death, whose life was of such perfection that he was without fault, without blemish. Our true Nazarite, Jesus Christ, had no sin, intentional or unintentional, that needed to be atoned for. There was no need for sin offering, no need for a guilt offering that that needed to be made on His behalf to enter into the presence of His Heavenly Father. In fact, He became the spotless atonement offering. It was His blood from a life perfectly lived that allowed us to enter God's presence and experience His blessings. It was His life that enabled us to join the Father's feast. And as we live into our calling as Christ's follower, He reintegrates our life. He begins to restore us to wholeness. He brings us to a place where the comforts and joys of this earth pale in comparison 
to the joy of Christ. We move from looking to God's good gifts as ultimate treasures to seeing God Himself as our ultimate treasure. He brings us to a place where we willingly submit our lives to His control. We receive His providential direction so that we say, Lord, not your, not my will, but Your will be done. He also brings us to a place where we hate our sin and the effects it has on our lives and the lives of others. We see it for what it is. And we seek to separate ourselves from the corruption of sin that leads to death. As these become a reality for us, as we lean into God's calling as His people, we will not only inspire one another toward greater faithfulness or greater devotion to the Lord, but we will find that we are at home with God. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, that is our longing. That is our hope to be at home with You. And we thank You that You have not simply left us an example to follow, but You have given us a Savior, a Redeemer, who would not only save us from the mess of our life, but who would reorder our life around You that we might know what it means to be whole, to be made righteous in You. Lord Jesus, Through your Holy Spirit, would you make this so true of us day by day by day. We pray this in the name of Christ Jesus, our Lord. Amen.